This is getting better and better. Well, Tyler, we're excited to have you joining us tonight. Uh, so like I mentioned before, we'd like to start off with a kickoff question. So, you know, I want to keep it a little bit light tonight. Uh, what, what's making you laugh today? What's making me laugh? You know, um, for me, it's the simple things. Um, I'm a pretty simple individual. And uh, I've had to learn, I think, over the last 20 years of my life to appreciate uh, the small things. I think back okay. in the day, and I'm sure we'll get into that later, but um, no, I, I, I look for the good and I'll, I'll find it wherever I can. And most of the time it's my employees. We have quite a few employees here and uh, they're good people. And they keep, me, they keep me on my toes, they make me laugh. They frustrate me occasionally, but for the most part, uh, they make me laugh. <laughs> We won't tell them that. We'll uh, we'll keep this part of that part of the podcast off, <laughs> or awesome. you can just start it for them and tell them that they that you love them and they never frustrate you. <laughs> they know. Yeah, that's awesome though. Well, we're excited to have you. I think our uh, our good friend Nick Meekum he had reached out to you. He uh, somehow found out about your story and uh, was really fascinated by it. And uh, so we were excited that uh, Nick uh, got us all connected. We're glad to have you on tonight. So um, thanks for joining us. Uh, and with that, folks, we do want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve Podcast, a podcast that disrupts your life to spark new growth and evolution. Uh, sitting in his cave in Oberlin, Ohio, surrounded by all of his boxing gloves, and I'm not sure if you've hit yourself with them yet, uh, but uh, is our resident intellectual himself, W. Miles Riley. Welcome, Miles. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Occasionally, I'm into self-punishment. I'll put a glove on and punch myself in the face every once in a while just to make sure I'm still alive. <laughs> That's great. That's what the black guy is, right? Yep. Yeah, that's great. Well, and in the mountains of Utah, I am Steve Cutler. Uh, guys, today we have a gentleman who is going to uh, help you to evolve your mind and evolve your soul. Uh, we're fortunate to have Tyler Ritchie joining us. Now, Tyler was born and grew up in Chandler, Arizona, and is the second oldest of six siblings. Uh, life turned upside down for Tyler following a motor vehicle accident where he was struck while on foot crossing a highway in Mexico City. At the age of 21, the vehicle was traveling at over 80 miles per hour and took Tyler over 300 feet. Wow, that's amazing. He immediately lost his left leg below the knee and he uh, and the use of his left arm and spent several days and over, uh, excuse me, over the next week on life support in a coma. He would spend the next month in the ABC hospital in Mexico, undergoing multiple surgeries to place orthopedic plates and a steel rod to help stabilize him uh, for the flight back to Arizona. Once home, Tyler continued to undergo many different surgeries from joint replacements to reconstructive to several different kinds of plastic surgery that helped with road rash along his scalp and scarring deformities that restricted movement. Tyler has since undergone over 90 different surgeries and procedures wow. over the past 20 years. Wow. Unbelievable. He earned his degree in prosthetics um, uh, from Northwestern University and has his MBA and is finishing a doctorate of business. Tyler was recently appointed as CEO of Pongratz Orthotics and Prosthetics, who ironically first met Tyler two months after his accident, helping him to learn how to rewalk after they delivered his first prosthetic leg. He and his wife, Christy, also from Arizona, currently live in Gilbert and have four children. He loves spending time with his family, uh, going to the gym and on walks and listening to, uh, Miles, you're going to love this because I did when I read it, listening to 80s music and watching mo movies with family and friends. Tyler Ritchie, we are excited to have you. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast. Thank you for having me, Steve. Yeah, well, let's just dive right in. What a story. Over 90 different surgeries and procedures over the last 20 years. Uh, let's go to the accident. I want to start there. I mean, talk about this accident when you were 21 years old. What a life-changing thing. Walk, walk our listeners through that. Yeah, 
So life changing indeed. Um, I was 20 years old at the time. Not sure I ever, I ever even had a, a surgery or anything to that, um, to that effect up until the accident. But uh, one morning we were on a drive with, um, with a couple people uh, in the middle of Mexico City. Our van had broken down. And as the van broke down, we got out, we got out um, of the van looking for some help. And I was the first one to cross the freeway. And as I did, and of course, this has been retold to me a number of times, and I don't remember it, but a car hit me going about 80 miles an hour and took me over about 100 meters or so. Wow. And uh, it was it was not good. And gratefully, I had some people that were there. <laughs> I like how you said that. It was not good. Generally, you know, when you get hit by a car going 80 I gotta miles tell an hour, you, it was... I actually felt for the people that were there and that saw the whole thing. You know, I, I was out, I was in a coma for, you know, maybe a little over a week. And when I woke up and had found out about what had happened, I mean, here my parents had flown in from Arizona to Mexico. My hospital room is full of some of the closest people in my life. And here I was living in Mexico for a time away from everyone. And so... You know, I, I learned very quickly that everyone had been living this somewhat of a nightmare for the last, you know, week or so. And so, uh, you know, fortunately, I got to skip all of that and really just came to seven, you know, seven, eight days after. And my big thing was just having to accept what had happened. And then, of course, the the upcoming surgeries and just getting back to myself. Wow. I, I can only imagine the challenges that the family had to go through. And I like how you framed that, that it was really difficult for you. But the family, I think, was one, the one that felt the initial shock of all of that. So your parents were there. You had family fly in. Your friends were there. Talk a little bit about some of the mental and emotional challenges that you had to go through in those initial uh, in the initial days. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, there really wasn't ever a time that I had anything close to this happen. You know, I was living down there in Mexico, trying to do a good thing. I was helping out families in need, serving here and there, and, you know, felt good about what I was doing. And then all of a sudden this happened. And when I awoke to this new reality, uh, you know, I remember the first day waking up the doctors had actually told my parents that they wanted to put a fake leg under the sheets just because they thought the initial wow. shock of waking up and not seeing a leg there would be too much. Mm. And um, gratefully, my parents, I think, knew me well enough to know that that's not really how my brain works. And so waking up to that and then hearing this week-long story of the car hit me, the amputation happening. I was on life support in a doctor's house in a little tiny town um, a few miles away. He had life support machines literally in his kitchen. And that was the closest thing they could get me to. So uh, it was a lot. And just hearing them recount what they had been through and then taking a look at what my body had been through which at the moment was just a head-to-toe cast. Um, I mean, anything that could have been broken was broken. And, you know, I hadn't seen my family for a couple of years, so there was a couple of emotional moments going on. I hadn't seen my mom and dad. Uh, my leg's gone. I was told many different things about my body that, that uh, they weren't sure about. So, you know, it's, I guess, in moments like that, that I really more than ever leaned on family, friends, and, um, and the great doctors there in the Mexico City Hospital, the ABC Hospital. So, I, okay, so you've got the family piece, you've got the emotion of, of going through all this. I want to go to the body for just a second. So you got thrown 300 yards, and you are in this situation where you've lost your leg. Uh, did you break any other bones? You've got the road rash. I mean, what else happened? Yeah, so beyond... I broke, broke a lot. So when I had woken up from um, a coma, I had already had a steel rod placed in my left arm, um, my humerus shaft in my left arm. And 
at the time I had no motion, no finger movement, nothing. And they said my humerus was completely shattered. So they had put a steel rod to act as my humerus by that point already. Um, I had fractured my wrist severely on the right arm, um, my shoulder, my knee. I mean, it was all more or less broke. I'm not sure I really learned to what extent till I got back here and went through multiple MRIs and x-rays and multiple specialists. I, I'll be honest, as great as the doctors were in that ABC hospital, I'm not sure they were equipped to deal with this long term. And mm -hmm. some of the things that I would have no doubt uh, in front of me. Wow. And so that and thus the multiple surgeries over many years, because, I mean, you're only 21 years old at this point. The body changes. Right. It grows. You know, this is not the end all body that you're going to be with. And so talk a little bit about how you had to go, um, you know, the 90 surgeries that you've had over the past uh, several years. Um, honestly, Steve, I think a lot of that was um, if there was any advice I wish I could have given to myself or had someone give to me back then it you know i was so intent on proving i could do everything that my previous body could do mm. and so once i i finished that first maybe six to eight months of major surgeries uh be it like uh some knee surgery a shoulder replacement um some of the plates and steel rods to to fix my fractures and my amputation I, I took off. Um, I got some therapy. I got better. I went skydiving. I tried to do everything. I don't, I don't know. I was out to prove a point. And I really wish, looking back, I hadn't been so intent on trying to prove, you know, what I was able to do or, or capable of doing. Because I feel like the first 45 surgeries or so were in the first probably year or two. And the second 45 have probably all been in the last seven years. Okay. So okay. there was this healthy state between maybe 23 and 33 that I felt like I was done. I accepted what had happened. I moved on. I went on to my schooling. I got married. I, I had children. And then about maybe seven, eight years ago, my body just started falling apart. And it was just one thing after another. And, and, and to be frank, these last eight years have been for me far more difficult than those first couple of years by a lot. And, you know, I, I, I've had to live a pretty healthy life and I've had to look through a different or a bunch of different avenues to, you know, tips, tricks, health wise, whatever I could do to stay, you know, to stay in shape. But, I, I wish I'd not gone so hard in those first couple of years because they have no doubt um, I've been paying the price probably for the last you know decade or so in either redo surgeries, joints breaking for the first time that were maybe just kind of hanging on by a thread, mm. and uh, a little something called arthritis. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I can feel that head to toe. Oh, I can. And imagine. no one had said that I would have to deal with that at some point. So, again, for me, I think the the my big thing was I thought once I accepted what had happened, I was good. And once the years had passed and now you throw, a, you know, four children and a wife in it and trying to provide for my family, uh, then things start falling apart. That's when I feel like the real emotional toll has, I mean, has taken place, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the physical toll sometimes doesn't show up until much later in life. Agreed. Um, after we've we created some damage. I mean, I, I think to my 45-year-old body and some of the bang-ups that I had when I was younger and in my 20s, and now I've got this uh, ankle or these knees or just these random things that I think, oh, I wish I wouldn't have been that dumb to do this and push that hard because it just it pops up later in life. It's a cumulative effect. Yeah. So I think that's probably good advice all the way around. I mean, I have friends like that and, you know, um, it is most definitely it's caught up with me. I mean, I'm 41 and, you know, I have doctors look at my joints all the time because I'm constantly being monitored and, you know, they're, they're pretty quick to say that I just, I have joints that are, 
of a 60, you know, 65 year old. Yeah. And that's what, that's what concerns them. And so I've been able to adjust later on in these years, just for those kinds of comments. I've been a lot quicker to listen to my doctors. And, um, and so, yeah, but quite the toll. Yeah. What you, you can't get out of your, huh? you can't get out of your twenties without feeling like Superman, regardless of what you go through. Agreed. That's just, yeah. that's, that's the phase of I am invincible. I am invincible. No, that, that, I, 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 I totally believe that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we all do it. some dumb things during that time of life. Yeah. You know, I, it, it's interesting what you're talking about, Tyler. I, I, I had the fortune of uh, training with uh, uh, Frank Zane, who many people don't know now, but he was a three-time Mr. Olympia. Uh, so he won the top. fortunate to train with him but what i was really fit to do was to train with him when he was by the time i started training with him and i said so frank what's one thing that you would do different and he said you know steve if looking back at all those days where uh arnold and franco and all these guys we trained really hard uh, i wouldn't do the same i wouldn't train that that hard i would train differently i would train because I know it causes damage later on in life. And I'm startled some of that. I think it's, uh, you know, there's a cumulative effect here. So th let's let's talk about that. As some of these things have, have come up, um, and let's be honest, I mean, whenever you get prosthetic uh, or implant or anything in your body, you're talking about a rod in the, the arm. I mean, those things wear out over time. Uh, they, they just have yes. to be replaced. So, you know, that's part of it. But as you've gone through this, talk about some of the, the mental or emotional challenges that you've had to deal with as, you, as you've had to uh, deal with the physical. I think a lot of it for me, um, if I'm being honest, uh, I'm not sure anything or anyone could prepare you for something of this kind of magnitude. And, and there's not very many days that go by that I'm not learning something new. Um, if there's anything that I've, I've learned how to be over the years, and this didn't start out this way. There was, a, I think there was a, a good couple of years at the beginning that I was pretty frustrated yeah, and maybe even a little angry that, uh, you know, I was a healthy kid. Um, you know, you kind of imagine this, this life that I'd seen my parents have, and I wanted that life. And you know, the toll that it had taken on me at the beginning, it changed over time. At the very beginning, my my first concern, I had road rash all over my hair. And so I was missing half the hair on my head. And they wouldn't let me look at a mirror for like the first couple of weeks, which bothered oh, wow. me already. Okay. Um, I had some I had some road rash all over my face. And the first time I looked in that mirror, my, honestly, my my total preoccupation at the time was what girl would ever find this attractive? And mm -hmm. how am I supposed to ever find a wife or move on with that side being in such it and just total like a total mess? And it, it just haunted my dreams. The very first time I saw a mirror in the first couple of weeks of after my accident. Um, I'll be honest, the leg was hard to deal with, no left arm. I was left-handed, so that was, that was difficult. Mm. But this idea that I might be alone forever, this idea that who, what girl could look past this mess of a, of a man and, and, and somehow find love. And it, it just, for the first probably six months to a year, that, that's all that consumed my, my brain and, um, you know, and once that happened, it was something different. Yeah, that's uh, it, it's amazing what the mind does and the stories that it uh, forces us to tell. You know, it's funny you, you, you say that and I'm 
taken back in time to a conversation I had with a gentleman that I used to work for that uh, got in a car accident. And he said the same thing to himself. He was paralyzed from the neck down. And he said, I just said to myself, there's no one that's ever going to want to marry me. And then you know, eventually he did find love. He did get married. And it, we, we do that, don't we? Mentally, we just tell ourselves the worst story. We are unlovable. We are not uh, somebody that deserves a good life. Um, that's a hard thing to get out of. And this is yeah, this mentality. Interesting is accident or no accident. Yeah, you know, yeah. There are people and out there people who are, yeah, yeah, never had yeah. anything wrong with them. People who are good looking and and still sit at home wondering, will I ever find love? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's like a cultural phenomena. Yeah, I don't know if that's a defense mechanism. Yeah, probably right. Well, I, I, you know, I wanted to prepare myself for the worst, and so I started feeding myself whatever story I possibly could, so that five years down the line, it wouldn't be a total surprise if I was, if I had not found someone. You know, Mm -hmm. I. I wanted to be a lawyer and I started to kind of tell myself stories of, you know, of that, the same, to the same degree that if I don't succeed, you know, then what, what kind of a job is going to want this person that's going to have injuries all the time. And I I think emotionally at the very beginning, it was all about my future. Um, I actually did not take the loss of my leg really hard at first i actually felt like it took some time to catch up to me and it wasn't probably for a couple of months and then it just hit me one day that i was disabled my left arm didn't work i had all these surgeries all these you know future surgeries and i remember where i was sitting and it would have been three to four months after my accident that it just hit me what had happened and what I was going to be having to face for the rest of my life, whether I liked it or not. And to some degree, it would just always now be with me. And this was now who I really am. It's interesting you talk about that because we all go through the healing process mentally, emotionally at a different pace. And I think that there is an expectation that we put on ourselves. We say, well, I should be at this point at this uh, you know, time. And we don't, there's no timeline. Right. Like you said, several months down the road, you're saying, well, okay, now I'm now I'm starting to accept some of this stuff. Um, We don't there is no timeline. And that's okay. That's something that we can't really determine what that timeline is going to look like. So once you got to that point where you said, okay, now I now I see where some of the gaps and the limitations are. um, What did that acceptance process look like for you? Um, you know, I, I think for me, the acceptance process, I don't know, it, it was so gradual. I, I think, Steve, you bring up a good point. Um, I was definitely on my own timeline. And, and I've learned that I, I've talked to thousands of people over the last 20 years that have gone through all sorts of horrendous things. And I will tell you what, there is no stamp no patterned timeline that after three months you're here after six months you're here um i I think for me it was a very gradual process i lived one day at a time and you know i remember my dad uh coming into my room once and i wouldn't say i turned it all around at this point but something about um he wrote up on a on a board I i haven't thought about this in a while but He wrote on a board a quote from Keanu Reeves in the movie The Replacements. It was, uh, uh, pain heals, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. And he just (laughs) stuck it on my wall, and he walked out. He didn't say a word. And you know what? After he walked out, I sat there looking at that for some time. and, And, you know, I guess I had something of an epiphany, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't ever want to convey that there was ever a turning around point. I, I, I struggled up to yesterday, but I did have this, this moment where I thought this, this is kind of up to me. Um, pain does heal. You know, I had been on a few dates and, and I thought this is, I think this is going to be what I make of it. And I'll never, I, I, 
I couldn't be more grateful for a dad that was very proactive and never really giving me too much room to sulk or hmm. play the victim. Um, you know, I think they were very, uh, I think they were really good with weighing that when to listen and just let me vent and then went to also um, not let me go too deep down that rabbit hole because that's another, you know, been there, done that, and it's no help. And so, yeah, for me, it was, it was really gradual, Steve. And, and I think to this day, I still struggle with different things, but it, it's been 20 years of learning and, and overcoming many different, because once I overcame something, I thought I was good. Mm-hmm. Then I got married. And then I realized that this, what I go through affects my wife. Yeah. And then I had to okay. learn how it affects other people. And then I had children. And then I had to learn, well, how my children are looking at me. Mm-hmm. And I, I swear, it's just the same lessons repeated over through various perspectives. And and I've learned a lot from all of them. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying there. A couple of things. Uh, one, it's great when you got people in your in your tribe, whether it's family, whether it's a friend that lets you vent, lets you get through the emotional stuff, as we call it, just show up for you, right? Show up and hold some space there. But then at the same time, not let you stay in that down spot too long, because we all need a kick in the ass from time to time to just say, hey, all right, you had your moment, let's get going now. But I also love that you say you, you struggled even yesterday, because Oftentimes, I think there's a commercialization to the story of recovery, the story of overcoming that becomes Hollywoodized. You know, it's this, here's the, here's the protagonist and they have struggled and now they're great and they live happily ever after. It's all bullshit. I mean, at the end of the day, this evolutionary process never stops. And every day there's going to be a challenge. There's going to be something new. So I love that you're talking about that because that's one of the things that, uh, that we believe it evolved, that uh, it's a never ending process. And sometimes it sucks. And then other times we look at it and say, man, you know what? I can look back off after 20 years and see some great lessons in there and yeah. I'm still struggling and that's okay too. Well, I, I think for me um, early on, I felt like I had to give those kinds of speeches. You know, I, I talked to high schools, I talked to youth groups, I, you know, I spoke everywhere and I felt like there was all this pressure on me to tell everyone about the victories and about where I, where I succeeded. But I asked, you know, it wasn't long after that, Steve, but I felt like I was selling people short. Because these kids were going to come through tough times. And yet I was trying to hide all the tough times I was still having. Mm. You know, I didn't lie to anyone. I certainly have had victories all the time. And and my thing is, if I win more days than I lose in a week, then it was a good week. And um, I've lived by that for years. And there are some times when I just don't have good weeks because of that. Uh, but I really do believe there is this commercialization you know, the movies, you know, these stories that we hear. I remember hearing a story of a guy who was paralyzed in a, uh, fell asleep at the wheel. Um, I think he played for, uh, I forgot, Utah College. And I remember seeing him speak in person. He had a beautiful wife. He was paralyzed, I believe, below the neck. Um, His name was Tyler. I don't remember his last name. And... I, I watched him as a 16-year-old in person. I just remember thinking, this is amazing. Now his life is wonderful. And that, that certainly wasn't his fault. But I've really tried to just be honest and open. Um, I win some days. I lose some. Uh, some days I can't tell. But I think the overall sum of my good days far outweighs my bad and that's why I can say with any conviction that I do that life is good. And, you know, there's, there's a lot out there um, for all of us to take part in, man. 
Yeah, I like how you just said there's some good days. There's some, you know, you win some days, you lose some days, and then sometimes you can't tell. Miles and I were talking earlier. I called him on my way home from work, and um, I, I said, how are you doing? And uh, his response, I think, <laughs> was really raw, and it was good. And it was kind of that. I like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I win it or lose it. <laughs> right? I was, I was and, having that day. Yeah, it's just that day, and that's okay. And I think it's, you know, when I was a kid, like you, Tyler, I would hear the motivational speeches. I would, you know, read the stuff. And uh, I think we all wanted that uh, that that success story. And at some point, we think that we're going to sure. live this perfect life. But uh, it's okay. You're going to lose some. We know that. But then some days are just average. And you know what? That's okay, too. Totally agree. You know, I, I totally agree. And I, I think I think the more I've learned over the years is I think people just in general respond better to, excuse me, to sincerity and to yeah. that sense of raw, just honesty. Um, I don't know what it was about that, that I felt like I had to be a part of those first couple of years where if I let anyone know that I was crying inside, that was a fail. And if I talk to a group and I let in at all that I'm still struggling, that was a fail. Yeah. Um, no one ever said that to me. There was just this perception I had. And, you know, after 20 years of doing this day in and day out, you know, I don't sleep. The surgeries happen on average every two months, two and a half months is what it works out to. You know, to say anything else would be, would just not be the case. And, if I want to help someone, then I feel like the best way to do so is by first just telling it like it is. And I think that's what people can relate to the most. It's what I can relate to the most is when people are raw and just give it to me straight. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a resilience there. You know, when we talk about developing our emotional intelligence, there's there's a resilience piece that's got to be there. And sometimes the resilience is just you got to deal with some points that are emotionally boring uh, or that are mentally boring. And you're just you're. you're yeah resilient and you're going through it you know, know what's interesting is um it's it's almost like the lowest common denominator you know regardless of what happens if you're not dead you still have to get up yeah. and it doesn't mean you're going to get up excited and go like i'm going to charge into the day you strip all that away and you got to get up and once you get up you kind of fumble through things you have these great moments you have these mediocre moments you have frustrating moments um, I think one of the problems with the whole idea of, to a degree of success in America and all kinds of successes is that we always see the end result. You know, you yes. see the actor walking down the red carpet, you see the musician getting an award, you see the writer getting an award. You always see people celebrated. And you never get to see them when they're at the bottom of the pit struggling with the very thing that we look at as their success. We, we never see that part. We never see the writer cursing, balling up every single piece of paper that he or she has written on and goes, this is a piece of shit that I'm working on. Or an athlete who just can't get something right or, or any of those things. We, we don't see that. We see the success. And I think sometimes it colors how people go through their lives. And then when somebody comes along who's kind of raw and authentic and says, this is how fucking tough it is. I'm having a tough time today. I can't get shit right. I think people start to respond to that more than they respond totally to the people, you know? Well, I, I think, uh, like you said, Miles, I, I, I feel like that's what social media is. You know, I, I, yeah. I feel like everything yeah. I look at on Facebook, and not to get into that, but I, I really do get this sense that everything we're looking at nowadays is the finished product, the best of everything, and, you know, a lot of, I mean, what turned me, what helped turn me around years ago um, was honestly podcasts just like this, um, you know, Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss and these kind of guys that just tend to say things like, like it is. And, you know, these, uh, I don't know, just uh, very real, raw, emotional human beings that just say it like it is. I just gravitated towards that. Yeah. And I felt like I learned they're right. I, I don't have to, I don't have to win every day for my life to be a success or for me right. to talk to this group and not feel like I'm lying to them. Yeah. 
Um, actually, I'd be lying if I said every day was great and I, I beat this accident. And But I, I think that's a good point, Miles, and I, I think that's dead on. We just see the finished product, and, and then when we don't get it, we sell ourselves short, we beat ourselves up. And, you know, uh, like you said, we got to wake up. I have to sit up. It, things for me are usually bad enough and I, I don't want to pretend like I have it any, any worse than anyone else, but on a morning, I literally have to just talk myself into sitting up. I have to talk myself into putting on my, my shorts, my shoes, my, my shirt. Yeah. I, I literally sometimes have to live my life just a few minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I knock a few small wins out and, and I just keep going, telling myself, it's all my choice. And again, some days I don't get up as quick and other days I get up, I bounce up. I'm got more energy, but uh, I, I think that's spot on. I really do. And so a lot, a lot of it is a choice and, and whether it's a choice that you've got to make those small choices over time, you know, to, to tell yourself to get the shirt on or to sit up or, or, or whether it's a big choice, a career choice, right? It's just, it's a constant choice. And there's some accountability to that, that uh, whatever you choose, you got to be responsible for. And it's okay that some of those small things are choices that you have to make on a day-to-day basis. I, I look at uh, a lot of the younger generation today, um, I think there's this uh, difficulty emotionally dealing with life because they have grown up, you know, different than we did. We didn't have social media. We didn't have phones. You know, life was shitty at times, and then it was not, and then it was good at times. But, you know, growing up in the 80s, it wasn't, there was nothing that we could look at and say, well, this was all picture perfect. And yeah, I think we had that nothing that, to compare ourselves to. No, not at all. I mean, yeah, I remember, um, you know, I got into skateboarding when I was young. And I remember going to California and seeing these guys skateboard. That was the first time I realized how shitty I was. Um, <laughs> I thought I was all right until I saw the guys in uh, uh, Santa Cruz and San Clemente and some of these areas. I was like, man, I'm not that good. Uh, but if I would have seen you imagine YouTube, seeing that every day in the form of social media, uh, yeah, people yeah. having something you never have. Right. I, I don't even know how some of these kids do it, to be honest. Well, it's amazing. And a lot of these kids that are in their teens and 20s, and uh, some of them have made millions of dollars doing online stuff. And so then every kid thinks they're going to go out there and they're going to make millions of dollars. And what a what a massive burden it places on the soul. I mean, it's just it's so unrealistic for the majority of the population to to deal with that. I mean, shit, I look at it at 45 years old and think, yeah, it'd be great to be a 45 year old with millions and millions like some of these youtubers are but uh, not and i have to work my hardest to uh, make and keep what i've got i'm not kidding you just this morning i was walking out and i saw this insane youtuber giving out half a you know half a million dollars to whoever would stay in this circle the longest right oh yeah yeah my, i watched that with my, my son eight, yeah my eight-year-old son was glued and someone did someone did something and my son said my my son said dad that wasn't real i'm sure he just did that for content Hmm. and my eight-year-old son as he tells me this i'm thinking this is what he knows yeah Yeah. like he used the word content correctly and that he recognized someone just they weren't doing a an, an an athletic demonstration as good as they could because they wanted content and I, I told my son, I said, I said, Seth, this is not how the world turns, my friend. I said, this is cool. That's neat that you watch it. But no one is going to give you ever a half a million dollars yeah. to stand in a circle. I said, dude, by the sweat of your brow, you got to get out there. But literally, that was this morning. It's different. It's very different. It's so funny because I watched that same video with my son over the weekend. I walked out uh, to the other room and he had it pulled up on the TV and he and his girlfriend were sitting there and they're watching this. I'm like, what the hell is this? So he explains it to me. And one of the, one of the things that hit me just because I'm like super nerdy this way, but some of these guys that are getting out and they're like, okay, I'll give you $2,000 if you get out right now. So they get out, they walk away with two grand. 
And they've been sitting in that circle for two weeks. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you made a grand a week minus capital gains tax. You made shit. And they were jumping and hooting and hollering. Like they're so excited that to get handed this case of cash. And I just said, <laughs> I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But it's all about the hype. It's and that's yeah. what we see over and over. It's the hype. It's not the reality. It's not what you deal with on a day-to-day basis. I and mean, this just, poor generation wakes up to that YouTube video. Nonstop. They go to bed. They yeah. got kids their age doing it. Yeah. They look happy. And I I mean, I have this, I have a very blunt conversation with my four kids all the time. We have a little plaque that hangs up in our house and it just says the Richies can do hard things, right? Yeah. And cool. I have to emphasize that even more than I thought I would because it's not my dad talking to me. It's me talking to four kids that have grown up entirely different than me. And I don't, you know, I don't ever, man, I would just, I would hate for my children to grow up thinking somehow that that's what this is all about and that this is how life gets handed to them and they need to land in that circle for them to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's, uh, I mean, this morning I literally just jotted the floor wondering how that stuff even flies but it does and you know we're living in the middle of it let me ask you this i mean we're we're all three of us are fathers on the podcast here and i one of the things that it dawned on me a few years back you know as you go through life and you pick up challenges uh and lessons from those challenges and then you also listen and read and learn and you know there's there's constant learning one of the things that hit me was that a lot of the challenges that I've had to overcome in life and and the things that I've learned, I just thought naturally somehow this was going to be transferred to my kids. Now I teach my kids on a regular basis. And like you said, multiple times where I think to myself, okay, I probably shouldn't have to say it this, this many times. Now you've been through a lot and you've had a lot of challenges in life and are still going through challenges. My question is the, uh, when you're looking at these challenges and you're trying to then teach your kids, there's no way you can transfer over what you've been to or through to them. But talk about how you teach some of the lessons, because I think that's one of the most important things. You know, uh, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I was literally just talking to my wife, not more than a week ago. Just, t- you know, I told her, I feel like sometimes I'm not sharing as much as I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of this, you know, lead by example, which I feel like I've done probably a fairly job, fairly good job of doing, you know, not always the best, but, you know, even despite what I've gone through, I've gotten 14 years of college and I've worked hard and, and, and you could just assume that that's all there for my kids to see and observe. So why should right. I have to say anything? Right. But, but I, I told her a week ago, they don't, observe I, it, right? they don't. They're yeah. observing Mr. They're observing a YouTuber hand out half a million dollars <laughs> for people that's right. been in the circle. <laughs> yeah. They're not observing yeah. dad over there grunting through getting changed and going off to, you know, uh, you know, to work for, you know, 12 to 14 hours. But I, I, you know, for me, years ago, someone gave me some great advice, and I was lucky enough to, for the most part, follow it. Um, a father told me, who I, I think he had five or six children, said that, you know, I try to meet and have little sit-down conversations with each of my children every month. Um, and my oldest was four at the time. My oldest is now almost 16. You know, I think for the most part, very few months have passed where I have not had a sit down one on one conversation with each one of my kids. Sometimes we're just drinking a soda Mm. down on a couple of donuts and there's no conversation at all. Um, But but I know that my kids know that every month they get some, you know, 15, 20 minutes of dad time. And I got to tell you, if it wasn't for that, I actually think I would have missed out on far far more opportunities than I've been able to take. Because like you, Steve, like literally, I was just telling my wife a week ago, I'm not sharing everything I know. Mm 
That was yeah. my little comment to her is I've learned a lot in the last 20 years and I'm not sharing it. I, I just assume they're learning, they're seeing it and they'll be fine because of it. And I kind of got down on myself for that reason because, well, because of this morning. And I think you're, I think you're spot on. And I'm not sure I've done a, a very great job at that. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, here, this is going to sound a little, a little off, but one of the things that I've learned as a dad is like, how do I keep my ego out of this? Because my ego wants instant gratification. I teach you a lesson. You do the lesson right now. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and that's pure ego. And I think you have to allow for, I think one of the toughest jobs I think is being a teacher. And the reason why I say this is a, a kid goes to a classroom. You know, I think about when I was in middle school and I went to class and I thought I could think of five or six teachers that I really, really liked who had an impact. But that impact didn't show up until I was 20. That right, teacher yeah. could have been dead. And he or she did not know the impact she had on me when I was running around in my 20s. Yeah. So the, yeah. the other thing is your, your kids grow, your kids grow into your lessons. So if you give them a if you give them a lesson, and this is just my opinion, like I said, there's no hard and fast rules about this, but I think when you give them a lesson. It goes inside of them and it sits there like a time release pill. And then all of a sudden they're confronted with a situation <laughs> where that lesson like that. needs to be executed and the pill time opens. Time release pill. Now they could be 30 years old. You could be dead and gone, but that pill opens up. And I can't tell you how many times my brother and I have said, yo, that's what dad would have done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my father's been dead for 20 plus years. So yeah, I, that's I think- a good point. How do you back up and say, give the lesson and walk away? As Sean Connery said in that movie, um, uh, The Untouchables, here endeth the lesson and walk away. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a friend of mine, it was a long time ago, he shared this same sentiment, Miles, and he shared, he said, Tyler, sometimes they're never going to learn the lesson until they make room for it. And sometimes the room for it doesn't come until they're faced with that moment. Right. And he shared an experience that he had with his father and he remembered a lesson that was taught decades ago, but he had finally made room for it in a personal experience in his own life that where he was finally able to see it, learn from it, apply it mm. and think, geez, Louise, had it not been yeah. for this one thing 30 years ago. Right. Um, so to that, that literally he um, shared that same sentiment, Miles, and I believe that I really do. Yeah, yeah, we really don't know because I I agree with you on the time release pill. Um, but I think you know, for me, early on, I used to think that leadership um, was really just about setting an example, and then I learned that uh, the kids will pick up what they see, but they also need to be taught. And great yeah. leaders lead by example. It's kind of a foundation. It's a baseline, but that's not the only thing. You have to teach and uh, you know educate and, and teach those lessons along the way. But I think to Miles' point, it, it does take some time uh, for that sort, no, of that sort of thing to germinate. I think I think uh, for years um, I, I saw in my own four kids they would notice someone with a disability out in the mall or at a restaurant really fast. Mm. Um, and all four of them, the same, they would see that person. They would feel bad for that person. They would want to help. And I remember looking at my wife and saying, you know, if the only reason I went through what I've gone through was to make my kids' hearts maybe a little softer, mm. I said that mm. would totally be worth it for me because my kids – they watch other people suffer and it just, it, it, it hits them pretty hard. Even, you know, minor, major suffering. It doesn't even matter. My kids, they see it and instantly they're affected because the things they've had to watch with me, you know, things that I wish no kids would have to watch from mm. them having to do everything for me for three months you know, uh, through shoulder replacement sur surgeries, through 
they just see the worst of you and they seem the worst of me. And I'll, I'll be honest. I, I've been very grateful, as you said, Steve, for that baseline that I've been able to kind of see myself through this because they no doubt know that we can do hard things, but you know, the, the part that I had a hard time with was the balance between showing them strong and um, protecting them from all the bad that I'm going through, whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety, it was this constant battle of, I want to fight for my kids. I want to lead by example, but I don't dare want to share this. And I, I had a hard time knowing where that balance was and what was appropriate to say, Hey, sometimes I feel depressed, you know, to maybe my oldest, or sometimes I have these little panic attacks. And, and so I, I, I felt like I, for the longest time, I thought I was doing this great thing by not sharing a lot of it. Um, but over the years, they're being subjected to so much so fast. I've actually learned that they can cope a lot better than I thought they could. And they understand things far quicker than I ever did as a kid. And they are ready for the lessons. Um, You know, I've been quite surprised and actually quite not surprised that they've been so quick to learn. And and so I've been a lot better over the last probably couple of years of not sheltering them from so much and just having sit down honest conversations about how hard my life can be and some of the feelings I deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, it's very wise because I and and I, I agree with you. The the kids, they do process a lot more information than we used to have to process, and so oh, I think that that then makes it so that they can process more, right? And I I, I think in the long run they they could be much more emotionally mature. I think their bandwidth can be broader than what ours was um, <laughs> if they can master the ability to process those emotions. Uh, so I love that you're talking about that balance. So how do you protect, but how do you, how do you deliver those messages in an appropriate timeline? Because it does take some growth in order for the kid to understand certain pieces, but I want to go back to something else. I mean, you, you're, you're, you talked about that they have developed more compassion. They've developed more empathy because they have this built-in, um, you know, f- from home system of yes. compassion and empathy. What a beautiful perspective that ties back to something you said earlier, where you had to learn how to uh, take care of yourself and eat a certain way and exercise a certain way to take care of your body. A lot of what you're saying, Tyler, leads me to this point challenges in life sometimes force us to find the best of our life to what they force us to do things that maybe we didn't uh, think we would do before so eating exercising so that you can just stay functioning right um, kids the benefit of the, the downside of everything you're going through is that they have greater empathy and compassion um, it, it's amazing how the shit of life oftentimes fertilizes the beautiful things no couldn't have said it better myself, Stephen. That's just, that is just the way it is. I, I had a conversation uh, yesterday, in fact, that um, a chiropractor friend was asking me about, I'd just done a, a seven day fast, water fast, right? Just trying to let my body catch up and heal itself. I just, one of the dozens of tools that I've had to, you know, use as a recipe of, you know, remaining relevant. And he asked me, how in the world am I able to do that? I'm like, I'll be honest with you. I said, I've been pushed to that edge. And I I think when most people get pushed to that edge or that far, I think most people would really surprise themselves on what they're capable of doing. Yeah. Um, You know, I've just been pushed in so many directions. I just have had to do things that are uncomfortable and I've had to somewhat take, you know, solace or maybe not pleasure, but uh, comfort with discomfort. And that this is just the way that my life is. And these are the things that I have to do to stay relevant, provide, be a father, be a husband. And, and my kids have no doubt seen that. And, um, you know, 
Yeah, I'd be interested to see in a time machine 20 years from now where those kids, what what they're doing with some of these lessons that they're picking up along the way. Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, me and my wife have tried to, you know, I, I really do feel like, though, I've been a lot more comfortable sharing some of these more difficult lessons. And without even realizing it, I've been more comfortable about that balance because I've actually begun to understand myself a little bit more mm-hmm. about be it depression, anxiety, you know, the emotional roller coaster that is life. I, you can't live this way for 20 years and not learn, not learn a thing or two about, you know, patterns of recognition, things that onset, you know, I think six, seven years ago, when the pain started getting as bad as it was, that was when I hit a wall. And, you know, I, I'm a pretty happy guy uh, by nature. But when I started having thoughts like, I don't want to be here anymore, and I would wake up and my thoughts would go immediately to like, just God, take me home. This is more than I bargained for. Um, that's when I thought I got four kids, like I can't afford to have those kind of thoughts, though I still do. Um, you know, I've had to combat them through, you know, healthy living through eating right. Um, I will say seven years ago, my pain was very bad and I, I couldn't escape that thought that I wanted to be gone. And my pain has gotten, I would even say, worse in many cases, and yet I am more positive today because of some of those changes I've made in my life and lifestyle. So it's certainly doable, and the tools and resources are certainly out there for all of us, and I'm grateful I live in this age of technology that, that we live in where I can learn so much about fasting on a couple of podcasts when I can, you know, turn over here and learn about, you know, surgeries and procedures. And, um, you know, I, we, I've, I've been very blessed to live in that kind of time, but, um, eat butter, blame the grain. (laughs) Hey, I have a shirt that says eat butter, blame the grain. No, I saw that. I saw that on your uh, Instagram page. I saw it. I thought it was great. Oh yeah. You know, I, I tell you, th- those were not easy changes to make. And, no, you know, I back in the days of there was a period of about four years where I was just having I, I, I went to have a spine stimulator put in to accommodate my pain in my back. It was a five day trial. And as the five day trial came to an end, um, I had some leads in my spine They pulled the leads. I was in a shirt and tie. I was off to work and they said, Hey, if you want the permanent, let us know. But within about 12, 10, 12 minutes of them pulling the leads, I was paralyzed from my waist down. And one of the art or one of the leads had kind of nicked an artery and I suffered this epidural hematoma or a, a, a clot over my spine. And it was compressing almost my entire thoracic spine and it completely paralyzed me. It was some of the worst pain of my life. It led to a very long surgery where they had to vacuum out over many hours, this clot. Um, I was in the hospital for a month and I was out for one day, put my prosthetic leg on and I was unaware that there was another clot in my limb that had spread at that same moment a month ago and it broke and I had a a pulmonary embolism. And You know, it's just been, I've tried everything and I, I will normally not say no to anything if I think it might have a shot at making my quality of life a little better. They're not all wins. You know, I think uh, spine stimulators are great for a lot of people. That one went completely the opposite way for me. And, you know, I spent a year and a half on injections to keep my blood thin i had um you know uh, uh, a filter put in permanently to keep a lot of those clots from hitting my heart and so you know I, I feel like we're in this very blessed age but at the same time um you know it's it's definitely not easy what to know 
from what all these options are, what's right for people and what's going to be part of their recipe for success, you know? Yeah. But you never stop looking. And I think that's part of what uh, creating the life that you want is all about. Um, you never stop looking you never stop testing, you never experimenting with stuff. You know, that's what never. makes life interesting. Right. No, because I totally agree. Think that we've got that formula, then we're, we're uh, ripe and rotten. So that's when we start to well, Tyler, we're, we're coming up on our time. I want to make sure we get some time for our rapid fire question. Uh, what, what, a, what a fascinating comment we've had so far. But uh, what we're going to do is just shift over to our fire. These are questions that we are looking for probably one word or one phrase to uh, answer these. Uh, you ready to go? Let's do it. All right, rapid fire round. So let's talk disruption and disrupt your life in order to spark new growth. Can you say that question one more time, Steve? Uh, let's talk disruption. How do you spark your life, uh, or excuse me, how do you disrupt your life, spark new growth? Oof, you know what? I will, I will say something. I'm not sure I do anything. Um, I wake up in pain. I, I go to bed with it, and I'm just not okay living that way. And I will do anything to feel less pain. And it keeps me on the go 24-7. So life is disrupting. You are continuing to push forward. I like that. Daily. What, uh, so, uh, Tyler, as you evolved uh, in your life, what is something that you used to be no longer do? So it, it all started with uh, a nice car that I bought that only let me put 91 octane fuel in it. And I'm not kidding you. I had a thought one day, I would not be very happy if someone put less than 91 octane fuel in this nice car that I had just gotten. And yet I was putting in all sorts of garbage into my body. I was just standing there pumping gas into my car. And I thought, I won't allow anything less than perfection to go into this, this, uh, this nice vehicle I have. And I had just downed a bunch of Taco Bell. I don't eat garbage. And if I, if there's anything that has changed my life more than anything else, it has been um, uh, using the right fuel for my body to to do what gets to to do what I have to get done, as opposed to eating for pleasure or happiness. And I know it sounds boring and terrible, but I'm happier. Yeah, well, that's it's not boring if you're happy. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Last question is, how do you tap into your creative power? Um, by never stopping. Uh, I, I love learning. And uh, there is not a day that goes by that I do not listen to a random podcast, a random message. Uh, you know, I ask a lot of questions and to the people I look up to the most. And I feel like the answers that have come my way over a lifetime, even as a kid, I was a lot like that. Now more so, um, I have tried to tap into the lives of others as much as I possibly could. If I can shorten my learning even a little bit or learn some, someone else has already paid the prayer, done. I'll, I'll do that in a heartbeat. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's, uh, we, we all strive uh, to do that same thing here on that on the podcast. Well, Tyler Ritchie, what an inspiration. Um, great to hear your story, the challenges that you grew and how you're working through it. Uh, so folks, I know it is time for us to wrap up another episode of the Evolve podcast. Uh, we want to thank Tyler Ritchie for us today and my co-host, uh, W. Miles Riley. Had a great yeah. conversation today. And uh, we thank hope you. that you, our missionary listeners, took something with you that will help you in your revolution. Uh, yeah, thanks so for sharing with us. No, thank you for having me. I uh, certainly appreciate yeah, it. And I'll uh, I'll thank Nick Meekum when I get the chance. Yeah, yeah, we're we. I need you out to him and thank him again for for having you on. So, I mean, you've got a great story. Um, you're 
a busy guy. If people want to continue to follow what you're doing, get in contact with you. If they have any questions, what's the way for people to follow you or connect with you? Um, email. Uh, email is usually the best. Um, I have it and I, I can forward you all the information, Steve, that I'm comfortable giving great. out. Yeah, why don't you send that and we'll put it in the show notes. That's great. Done deal. Perfect. Well, thanks, Tyler. And uh, folks, hey, favor, will you? Um, if you like this episode, share it with your friends. Uh, when you share the episodes, friends, it helps us to get a little bit more exposure out there. It helps us to book more amazing guests like Tyler onto the past. Miles, what's new at Evolve? Well, folks, you know, last last uh, month, uh, the month of August, we highlighted the um, Evolve Your Soul. We are going to continue that through September. Remember, it's the one part of you that you can never shake, and that is your soul. It's always evolving. Even when you're not paying attention to your soul, it's evolving. So pay attention to your evolving soul. Run over to the shop, pick up an Evolve Your Soul t-shirt, and evolve. Love it. And remember, folks, it does take time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt in order to evolve your mind, evolve your body, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. You are fantastic. But uh, hey, now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. And evolve.